the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered and said, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come up upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come up upon them, and skin had covered them, and there was no breath, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Israel, our bones are dried. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves. I will raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So in this passage, Ezekiel 37, we see that the people of Israel have been overthrown, and they have been sent into captivity in the land of Babylon. They have lost the promised land because of their sin and rebellion against God. And so this prophet, this man, Ezekiel, is given visions by God. And what I just read to you is one of the most vivid visions, not only in the book of Ezekiel, but in the entire Bible. And Ezekiel, in encountering this reality that God's showing him, they're addressing a very real concern that the people of Israel have in the middle of their captivity. Do the people of Israel have any hope? Are they as good as dead? Are they cut off forever? Have they lost any kind of hope at all? This is the question that they're asking. 
And God is responding to them in this vision and saying, no, you have not lost hope. You will not be cut off forever. Behold, God says, I will open your graves. I will raise you up, O my people, and I'm going to bring you back into your land in order that you may know that I am the Lord. I want you to know me, God is saying to them. I want you to know who I am, and I will do whatever it takes, even if I have to undo death in the process. Whatever it takes. So whether you take this passage to be a prophecy explicitly for the ethnic nation of Israel, or whether you see this passage encompassing all of the children of promise, all of the children of Abraham, um, regardless of how you see that, either way, it tells us one very clear thing. It tells us that nothing can stop God. Not even death. Not even death. Nothing can stop him. It is impossible for anything to stop him. God can raise anyone to life which is exactly what our passage in the book of Colossians is going to tell us today. We've been going through the book of Colossians, and Ezekiel 37 really is just a springboard for us to see this. So if you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn them to Colossians 2, verse 11. So we're reading a passage today of three verses, and we really covered, in last week's service, we covered the first part of this passage And we're going to move through the first part and we're going to get into the second part today. But I want to read this entire flow of thought because it's all really one complete uh, dialogue that Paul's having with the people of Colossae. Here it is, verse 11. Paul says, In him, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And then he says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So just by way of summary, I'll cover really quickly what we talked about last week. Paul says that when Christ died, when Jesus Christ died and when he was buried, in a very real way, believers were buried with him. And last week we spent quite a a good bit of time going over what this language means, why Paul uses this word circumcision, why he uses the word baptism. What is he trying to say? He's expressing this reality that we have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. And that happens through the means of him raising us from the dead. And he's talking about something that happened when Jesus physically, 2,000 years ago, rose from the dead. Now, when he says we were raised with Christ here, he's not just talking about a future resurrection that hasn't happened yet. He's talking about something in our lives right now, something experiential to believers. An inbreaking of Christ's resurrection power in our lives today. 
So what does this mean? Well, Paul says we were raised through faith in the powerful working of God. So he's saying that when you were raised with Christ, God did something in you. He did something powerful in you. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead came to you through faith, through the the channel or conduit of faith, our faith in Christ Jesus. So think about this. Jesus Christ rises 2,000 years ago from the dead after being dead for three days, and God's power from that point in history launches out to every believer at all time and streams into their hearts through faith, and they go from death to life. Now, Paul, in verse 13, shifts to not just expressing this idea of us being raised with Christ, but he goes to this concept of why. Why why did God do it this way? He could have done it any way he wanted to. Why this morbid dying and coming back to life again? Why would God do this? And Paul tells us why in verse 13. What caused God to become a man and die, to rise from the dead so that he could raise us with him? Colossians 2.13 says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now that verse tells us that our death in this passage isn't just something that happened to us experientially through Christ, but before we even encountered the gospel, before we even heard about Jesus, we were dead already. We were dead already. Not physically, obviously. We were spiritually dead. And so the question we should ask when we see something like this in the Bible is why? Why, why are we dead? Why, why use that language here, Paul? And he provides two reasons. Both of them are connected. The first one is, he says, you were dead in your trespasses. Your sins made you dead. Everything you've ever done to dishonor God in your life has brought into your life a kind of deadness that is real. And then he says, secondly, the uncircumcision of your flesh, which we talked a little bit about last week. Um, This uncircumcision of your flesh is the passion to pursue sin. So not only is there a deadness in what we do, but at the root of all of those things, there is a desire or a hostility really towards God and his design and his purposes that causes us to do whatever we want to do and not really give a rip about what he thinks is right or wrong. That's the source of our sinning. That's what makes us dead. But the amazing thing about this passage is that God doesn't leave us that way. He does not leave us that way. He raises us up from our spiritual deadness. And he not only does that by uniting us with Christ in his death and resurrection, but he forgives us of our sins. That's part of him making things right. He intervenes. He forgives us of our sin. Now, this concept of God bringing someone from death to life is all over the Bible. It is all over the Bible. And it doesn't take very far to go into another passage, another part of uh, especially the New Testament, to see it. But what I want to do now is this 
one verse is really just scratching the surface of what this reality is. I want to go into Ephesians 2, and I want to look at the depths of what this means. What actually happened? What does it mean to be dead? What does it mean to be made alive? (coughs) And so, let's turn to Ephesians 2. Out of all passages in the New Testament, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, is the most, in my opinion, profound passage about this. Paul's talking about the exact same scenario. He's talking about this exact same experience, and he's going to describe it in very stark terms. So let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, And you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Thank God there's more than these three verses. That's heavy stuff. Paul begins this chapter in Ephesians by saying, you were dead. You were dead. That was a real thing for you, Ephesian believers. It was a real spiritual reality. And just like the Colossians, the source of their deadness is their sin, the trespasses and sin in which we once walked. So think about what he's talking about here. All the ways that we have dishonored or disregarded God, all the ways that we've treated him less valuable than he really is. And this isn't, sing, this isn't simply an event in our life. Like I sinned here, I sinned here, I sinned here. It's not even a series of events. He says, we walked in them. This was a way of life for us. This is how we did life. We walked in these passions, in these sins. It's not a passive neutrality too, because if you look at it here, verse 2 says, In our walking in them, we are following the course of this world. We are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So this isn't simply an unresponsiveness. When we say we were dead, we're not saying we were neutral to God. We're not saying that we had this passive ignorance ignorance that was like kind of like a deadness. We just didn't know. Um, What it's saying here is this is a kind of rebellion. We are following the course of this world. This is not neutral to God. There's no neutrality here. This is opposition to God. And it says the one we're following is called the prince of the power of the air. Most theologians believe he's referring to the ruler of all rulers in the language that we're borrowing from Colossians, Satan, which uh, 2 Corinthians 4 says is the God of this world, the God that runs this world underneath the sovereignty, obviously, of the living God. He's the spirit at work right now in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, Paul says. So think about this. Paul is saying that every son and daughter, every human being is a son or a daughter of disobedience naturally. This is a universal, heavy reality. Every human being Every human being, no exception. Genesis 8, 21 says, the heart of man is wicked from their youth, from their childhood. 
And Psalm 51 even says that we were conceived in iniquity. So Paul is, is painting a consistent picture of what the Bible says about this. Um, no one had to teach you how to disobey God. No one had to teach you how to do that. That came naturally. That comes naturally to everyone, just as natural as breathing. For example, selfishness isn't a competency that we have to teach our kids. They know it. They're experts from day one in selfishness. You don't have to teach anybody that. It's in us coming out naturally, which leads to us living in, like this passage says, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and and mind. We are sinning because it's our way of life. And this tragic situation, and it is heartbreaking to see that this is the default reality of human beings. This tragic situation is problematic for us on a lot of levels. The most important is this, those natural selfish desires dishonor the living God. And they put us in a really bad position with him, objectively. Paul says here, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is heavy language, children of wrath. You don't get more serious than that. So what I want to do here is, is say, how is it that our, our natural desires are so bad, so severe, that God, speaking through Paul, calls this the default state of humanity? What did we do that was so bad? What did we do that was so bad? Why are we children of wrath here, Paul? Well, here's the problem with that question. The question should not be, what did we do that was so bad, necessarily? We can ask that question but that's not the most important one. Sin isn't really just doing things right or wrong. Sin isn't about that mainly. Underneath all of those actions is a disposition that says something about God. When we do stuff in this world, we are saying something about the one who made us and who gave us meaning and purpose. And the question should be, what do our actions tell the world about what we think about the one who made us? What do our actions say? Do they say, thank you, God, for creating and sustaining the entire universe and every molecule in my own body, and thank you for creating a kind of universe, a cosmos, that has things like joy and pleasure and happiness and bright, sunny uh, Mother's Days. Thank you for creating that. Um, but I'd rather you not call the shots in my life. I know you gave me meaning. I know you gave me purpose. I know you know how I'm supposed to live, but thank you very much. I think I can make these decisions better than you. This is the reason why Paul's language is so severe, and it's God's language that he's given Paul, because disobedience to Paul isn't just rule-breaking. It is that, but it isn't just rule-breaking. It is a statement about what you think about God. When I do something in opposition to God, when I sin, I'm saying something about how valuable or not valuable God is to me. That's what I'm speaking with my heart. So for mothers today, for example, and I don't mean to, maybe this isn't your experience. I'm just going to say this is a hypothetical experience then. For Mother's Day, um, this is a situation I see even as fathers with our kids. For example, you bring your kids to Target or something, and they see something they want, 
they really, really want it. And you say, that's not right right now. We, we can't get that right now for whatever reason. Their response to you in that moment, to everyone around you, tells the people around you what your kids think of you. Now, I'm not saying that as an indictment at all. Please don't take that. There's ups and downs here, uh, obviously. But what I am expressing here is, is this. There is an aspect when we think about how we relate to God where what we do with our lives, how we adhere to who he is and what he's designed us to do, that expresses that reality. Loudly. And when we talk about God, we're not talking about a parent that has shortcoming and shortcomings and faults and maybe isn't making the right decision on a given day but still should be honored. We're talking about the most perfect and valuable uh, being in the universe. The one who gives everything else around it, including us and anything we like in this world, value. Nothing has value outside of him. And what sin does is it treats him, the greatest reality, worthless. Like he's a small, insignificant thing and like his desires and his passions in this world do not matter, which is why Paul uses this language. Sin isn't just an action, it is a statement about God. And so by the end of verse 3 in this text, we should feel like the Israelites in Ezekiel 37. If you don't, I haven't done a good job of communicating our situation. We should feel like them. This state, in the state that we're in, we are very dead. We are, we should think about our situation and say, hope is unrealistic. Any kind of good benefit that we can get from this is unrealistic. We should discount any possibility of that and just find out what, what the worst, po- what, what, what the best possible situation and the worst possible result would be. It is completely unrealistic to hope in this, but Paul is not, praise be to God, done painting a picture. So look at verse four. Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that, Paul? He's going to tell us. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is astounding. These two words that begin this sentence, but God, are the hinge of redemptive history. They are the center of the Bible, and they are the center of the gospel that God did not leave us to ourselves. He didn't leave us in the state that we were in. That is stunning to me. Because he, if objectively speaking, he should have just left us. There's no obligation on him to do anything. We abandoned him. So he should have abandoned us. But he doesn't do that, despite everything in those three verses. And there is a mountain of stuff in those three, first three verses doesn't matter. He still comes after us, and that's amazing. I, Paul's saying, I know who you were, Ephesian church, Colossian church, Risen Hope. I know who you were. 
I know the things you loved in this world. I know them. I know what you've done. I've done it too. But God, there's a solution here. There's hope in this. God enters the scene and every single thing changes. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And so we just need to look at this. God is rich in mercy. I don't know what kind of idea you have of God. I don't know how you conceive of him. He is inexhaustibly rich in mercy. He looks down on us in our sin, in our rebellion, in our deadness, and he doesn't feel just angry and wrathful about the sin. He doesn't just feel that. There is another passion in his heart rising to the top, and it's mercy. It's mercy. It climbs all the way above all of his just anger and justice over what we've done, and he is merciful. He looks at us in our weakness and in our sin, and the dominant feeling in God's heart is not wrath. It is mercy. It is not judgment. It is grace and compassion and loving kindness. And we all know that John 3.16 says, God for so, for so God loved the world that he gave his only son. God loves the world. Nobody should ever question whether or not God loves the world. He loves the world. But Paul's creating a distinction here. He uses a phrase that he only uses very rarely to talk about the people of God. And it is these two words together, great love. This is not just God's love, unconditional love for all people. This is his great love. So think about this for a second. Whoever is in the next few sentences after he says this isn't just receiving an invitation to salvation. They're not just receiving an offer to salvation, which is enough. That should be enough. The kind of love here is more than an offer. It is great love. God is going to reach down into the deadness of their soul and he's going to stop the deadness in its tracks. And he's going to turn back time. And he's going to make them alive. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. This isn't just an offer. God takes his lips and he puts them to the deadness of our soul and he breathes life into us. And for the first time, as a human being, we are actually alive. We are really alive in every conceivable way. We are alive. And this event is nothing short of a miracle. We are not defined by sin anymore. We're not defined by wrath. We are alive in Christ. Now, at this point in the text, there are two clear, distinctive results of God's work, God's miraculous work to bring us from death to life. And Paul explains both of them. We'll go through both of them. The first one is this. God not only raised us from the dead here, but Paul is saying that we followed Jesus as he went up and sat with his Father in heaven. That there's a real part of us that is 
reigning with Christ. We followed Christ Jesus to his throne. It says God raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. We are seated with Christ. Right now, Jesus Christ, a man who lived and died 2,000 years ago, is seated at the right hand of God. And in some real way, right now, we are with him, according to that verse. He accounts us in the mind of God being with him. And that means we enjoy all of the benefits of Christ's authority, his reign, his glory, his beauty, as children of the living God. He reigns, and we're his people. And so we recognize that one day, what we see right now and experience right now in part will become fullness. We will experience that in fullness. If you look at Revelation 3.21, for example, Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so Paul's telling the Ephesians, he's like, do you know what Jesus is promising you here? Do you, can you conceive of what he's promising you here? What that throne means in the coming ages, forever, God will show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us, those who are in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches. Why use words like that, Paul? He means it. Surpassing beyond every conceivable form of measurement that you can even think of. And in this passage, the passage in Ephesians 2, he is effectively summarizing our eternity in one sentence. In the coming ages, God will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. That's what eternity looks like. But in some real way, obviously, there's no way we can fully conceive of all that's in that verse. It will take us all of eternity to even scratch the surface of God's loving kindness towards us. And we will explore the mountain ranges of God's grace forever. Now, remember, there are two results to this. This is one result, that we will reign with Christ, and in a real way, we are reigning with him now. We are seated with Christ Jesus. But the second result is, We need to look at the next part of Ephesians 2. So verses 8 through 10. Paul is about to sum up everything he's just told us in one or two sentences, one complete thought. Listen to what he says here. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Then he says, For we, all of us, Risen Hope, Ephesians, Colossians, we are His, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved. This is the same exact phrase that he inserted right between us being dead and us being made alive. We are have been saved by grace. And he uses it twice here, the same exact language. Now, why do that? It's because he wants us to know, if we we leave with just one thing in this text, it's got to be this. You have been saved by grace. This isn't you that did this. This is an act of the living God. 
This is not something we brought to the table. This is a gift. All of it was done by God. The only thing we contribute in the Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 equation is deadness. That's the only thing we bring to the table is our sin and our transgressions. Nothing good comes from us in this equation. Everything, everything comes from God's powerful work. This is one of the reasons why the Bible uses the word dead to describe our state. It uses the word sleeping. It uses the word blind. It uses these other phrases. But why push it all the way to deadness? And the reason that happens is because God in the apostles and in Paul is trying to express the absolute futility, the utter abandonment that we had of not having any ability at all to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps We are only saved by the great power of God and his mercy. Salvation is entirely of the Lord. And the reason it is, is so that no one may boast. God, at the end of the day, wants to make it very clear to the entire universe that when I rescue a people for myself, I do the work. I come and get them. I save them. I redeem them. It's by my grace Now, I told you there were two results to this miracle of being raised from death to life, of God making us alive. The first is that we're seated with Christ Jesus right now in a real way. We're sort of on the the front porch of eternity. We got a chair in there. That's our chair. But we're going to hang out here for a little while longer. And the question we've got is why? Why are we here? Why? Why is it that we, after being redeemed and saved, that God has desired to keep us in the world? Why is it that after we are brought from death to life, he just doesn't scoop us up and say, all right, let's get home. Why are we still here? And the answer to that last question of why we still have to endure the pain and the tragedy and the struggles with our own sin and the struggles with all the different things that are in this world and the suffering that's here is answered in this this last verse, Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He's saying that you, Christian, were made front to back, top to bottom by the living God. You are a new creation. You are his handiwork. You are his workmanship. you are no longer following the course of this world. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You are no longer in debt to the prince of the power of the air. You have been remade. You have been made new for good works that, you sh- that God had made beforehand that you should walk in them. This is the reason that we were raised in Christ and still live in this world. So what does Paul mean by made beforehand? Like what is he saying here? God made these things and now he's, what is, what's going on here? He means that before the universe even existed, before there was ever a cosmos, God knew intimately the good that he would do to you. And he intimately knew the good that he would do through you. And everything that's happened in your life, up to the point that you're made alive, and even beyond that, to the point you take your last breath, is God working all of his power and purposes to bringing that to life, to bringing that to fruition. This is staggering to me to think that God had me in his mind before he formed stars. 
he was developing all of the ways that he would use me to proclaim his name once he brought me from absolute death to life. And I need to make a distinction here because when we think of good works, I think we immediately think of actions, and those are good works. Don't get me wrong. Actions are good works. We should not deny that at all. But just like sin, actions in themselves are only fruit of something else. They're fruit of something underneath all of that. They're not root. They're very much fruit. So what did God prepare beforehand? What did he do before he created the universe for me in his mind and in his heart that I might walk in them when he revived me from death? He prepared our hearts to treasure him supremely and to delight in him supremely before we were even born. He fashioned all of that before we were even born. He designed our hearts to love him and he gave himself to us so that we might enjoy him. And that was all his plan since before the universe existed. And I want to close on something interesting here that Paul says. Paul says, for we are his workmanship. He's, in, in saying that, he's clearly obviously leaning into what he said before. We didn't do this. We're God's work. God made us. But the word he uses here for workmanship is very fascinating. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It's the Greek word poiema. And the first time it's used is in Romans 1, when God is describing his indelible fingerprint on all reality, like that God, the living God, is clear to every human being, no matter if they deny it or not, no matter if they're bored with him or if they're in love with him. In creation, God has displayed his invisible attributes and his power, his divine power. And so everyone, somewhere deep down inside themselves, know God made this and God made me. And I'm responsible to love him because he's infinitely worthy of love. Everyone knows that. That's the first time that poyema is used. God's workmanship in creation, his fingerprints. The second time is when it's used here in Ephesians 2. God's work in the new creation, his fingerprint on the new creation, how he takes a spiritually dead person and brings them into life, raises them to life in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, this reality that we've been talking about today is God's poema. It's his workmanship. And the Greek word is interesting here because I don't know if you noticed, but it's very similar to an English word that is directly derived from this. And I wonder if you can guess what it is. Does anybody want to take a guess what the English word is? Poema is where we get the English word poem. Poem. That's the kind of workmanship that God's talking about here through the Apostle Paul. God, the infinite God, wrote a poem. He wrote a poem before the ages even began. He knows the words of this poem by heart. He loves the words of this poem. And he wrote it before the cosmos was spoken into existence. And you are the words of that poem. You are the lyrics of that poem. 
Your life is the lyrics of that poem, and that is why we are raised with Christ, and that's why we're still in this world. He wants people to hear it. He wants people to see it in our lives, in our actions. He wants people to see not only in physical good works, but in us delighting in him over everything else, in us treasuring him over all the other things in this world that some worthy of our affection but he's so infinitely valuable that we love him more than anything else. You remember what God told Ezekiel? He said, or what he told the people of Israel, really, he said, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know, you shall know that I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my own spirit, I'm going to put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you will know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. God says over us, I have spoken, and I will do it. Being raised with Christ is not just a promise for future glory. It is that. That is coming to us. We will be seated with him at the right hand of God. Praise be to his name. But it is an outpouring of God's resurrection power in Christ Jesus in our lives today. And it allows us to know him. To really know God in such a way that, that it, the reality of who he is grips us so that we can't help but show him to this world. If your faith is in Christ Jesus, your life is a poem written by the hands of God before the world began. That's what Ephesians 2.10 is telling you. And I pray that you feel it. That's an amazing thing. God has been waiting ages to speak this poem. For you to be born and then for you to be born anew. But in order for that to happen, in order for us to be born anew, born again, in order for us to be brought from death to life, he had to get into our deadness and reverse it. In fact, in order to do that, in order to reverse our deadness, he couldn't just snap his fingers. He created the entire universe with his mouth, but he couldn't do that to absolve our sin. In order to absolve our sin, he had to turn the entire cosmos upside down on its head. And the living God, the author of all life, had to become a dying man. And when he dies, the author of life, he goes all the way to the bottom, he lays hold of our deadness, deadness that comes from our own sinning and rebellion, and he picks us up in his nail-scarred hands and says to us, hope is not lost. I've got you, and I will not let you go. I promise you, I've spoken, and I will certainly do it. That's the God we worship here. That's the God we worship. The, the difference between what God says and what God does is nothing. There is a zero delta. He always keeps his promises. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, you have been made alive. You are a new creation. You are his poema. You are his poem to the world written before the universe even existed. And in a few minutes, we're going to be participating in the Lord's Supper.
And many Christians live their lives and they never know the miracle that happened to them when they trusted Christ. They never know what had to happen to get them from a state of spiritual deadness to delighting in the living God. And that's a tragedy. This book exists so that that isn't true. It tells us what happened to us. A dead person coming back to life is a big, ye- big deal. All of heaven, Jesus says, rejoices when that happens. And God is showing us this in his word in order to fuel the fire of our affections so that we would be gripped by who he is, we would be in love with who he is, that that would be the dominant reality in our lives. And the Lord's Supper is a critical part of that. Every week we do this, we remember what he did for us. We remember what it cost him, that he gave his body and his blood to undo death itself. And he was swallowed entirely by the grave so that he could raise us from our own grave, our self-made grave. It didn't cost him nothing to do this. This was an expensive transaction. It cost the precious blood of the infinitely worthy Jesus. It cost God everything to do this. So when you take these elements, my prayer is that you would take the bread and the juice as we worship with faith and gratitude, obviously, but that you would eat them knowing that in Christ Jesus, you have been made alive through faith by a powerful, death-defying exertion of God's grace. God did this for you. This is his great love for you. This is his immeasurable riches of kindness to you. This is his unending mercy to you. And I want to close with a prayer from King David. And I hope that you, when you hear the words that David uses to describe his relationship with God, that you feel this. You feel what's at the bottom of his heart, knowing how God's called the shots every day in his life and brought them to the point that he can worship him. David says this, Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You, God, saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none. You wrote those down before I was even part of your creation. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, it is physically impossible for me or for anybody else to to read these words and hear these expositions and comprehend the fullness or the gravity of all that we've talked about today. It's impossible for us to physically do it. We need you. And your word says that you showed immeasurable greatness of power in Ephesians 1 when you raised us with Christ Jesus. And I'm praying right now that in this room, every heart 
in every heart that might hear me through the recording, I pray that you would come and you would penetrate all the way to the bottom where no one but us has been. The things we've said, done, and thought that no one knows but us. And that you would heal that. That we would ask for forgiveness for that and that you would come and rescue us from that deadness, Father. And then that we would recognize that by your grace alone, Father, you've brought us up and in some amazing way seated us with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places so that every spiritual blessing, every conceivable goodness that could come from us from an infinitely powerful God is on its way to us. Parts of, it is, parts of those breakers are already hitting our feet when we delight in you and love you and treasure you in this life. So I pray that you'd break through the deadness of our hearts, break through the deadness in our ears and our thinking, Father, and that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes as we worship, as we take communion to the glory of Christ Jesus. And we would leave this place knowing that our God loves us so much. He loves us so much. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.